This episode, we continue reading the 2003 opinion of the court in Gruder v. Bollinger. Picking up where we left off last episode, we begin with part three of the opinion. Part three. Section A. With these principles in mind, we turn to the question whether the law school's use of race is justified by a compelling state interest. Before this court, as they have throughout this litigation, respondents assert only one justification for their use of race in the admissions process, obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. In other words, the law school asks us to recognize, in the context of higher education, a compelling state interest in student body diversity. We first wish to dispel the notion that the law school's argument has been foreclosed, either expressly or implicitly, by our affirmative action cases decided since Bakke. It is true that some language in those opinions might be read to suggest that remedying past discrimination is the only permissible justification for race-based governmental action. But we have never held that the only governmental use of race that can survive strict scrutiny is remedying past discrimination. Nor, since Bakke, have we directly addressed the use of race in the context of public higher education. Today, we hold that the law school has a compelling interest in attaining a diverse student body. The law school's educational judgment that such diversity is essential to its educational mission is one to which we defer. The law school's assessment that diversity will, in fact, yield educational benefits is substantiated by respondents and their amici. Our scrutiny of the interest asserted by the law school is no less strict for taking into account complex educational judgments in an area that lies primarily within the expertise of the university. Our holding today is in keeping with our tradition of giving a degree of deference to a university's academic decisions within constitutionally prescribed limits. We have long recognized that given the important purpose of public education and the expansive freedoms of speech and thought associated with the university environment, Universities occupy a special niche in our constitutional tradition. In announcing the principle of student body diversity as a compelling state interest, Justice Powell invoked our cases recognizing a constitutional dimension grounded in the First Amendment of educational autonomy. The freedom of a university to make its own judgments as to education includes the selection of its student body. From this premise, Justice Powell reasoned that by claiming the right to select those students who will contribute the most to the robust exchange of ideas, a university seeks to achieve a goal that is of paramount importance in the fulfillment of its mission. 
Our conclusion that the law school has a compelling interest in diverse student body is informed by our view that attaining a diverse student body is at the heart of the law school's proper institutional mission and that good faith on the part of a university is presumed absent a showing to the contrary. As part of its goal of assembling a class that is both exceptionally academically qualified and broadly diverse, the law school seeks to enroll a critical mass of minority students. The law school's interest is not simply to assure within its student body some specified percentage of a particular group merely because of its race or ethnic origin. That would amount to outright racial balancing, which is patently unconstitutional. Rather, the law school's concept of critical mass is defined by reference to the educational benefits that diversity is designed to produce. These benefits are substantial. As the district court emphasized, the law school's admissions policy promotes cross-racial understanding, helps to break down racial stereotypes, and enables students to better understand persons of different races. These benefits are important and laudable because classroom discussion is livelier, more spirited, and simply more enlightening and interesting when the students have the greatest possible variety of backgrounds. The law school's claim of a compelling interest is further bolstered by its amici, who point to the educational benefits that flow from student body diversity, in addition to the expert studies and reports entered into evidence at trial. Numerous studies show that student body diversity promotes learning outcomes and better prepares students for an increasingly diverse workforce and society, and better prepares them as professionals. These benefits are not theoretical, but real, as major American businesses have made clear that the skills needed in today's increasingly global marketplace can only be developed through exposure to widely diverse people, cultures, ideas, and viewpoints. What is more, high-ranking retired officers and civilian leaders of the United States military assert that, based on their decades of experience, a highly qualified, racially diverse officer corps is essential to the military's ability to fulfill its principal mission to provide national security. The primary sources for the nation's officer corps are the service academies and the Reserve Officers Training Corps, or ROTC, the latter comprising students already admitted to participating colleges and universities. At present, the military cannot achieve an officer corps that is both highly qualified and racially diverse unless the service academies and the ROTC used limited race-conscious recruiting and admissions policies. To fulfill its mission, 
the military must be selective in admissions for training and education for the officer corps, and it must train and educate a highly qualified, racially diverse officer corps in a racially diverse educational setting. We agree that it requires only a small step from this analysis to conclude that our country's other most selective institutions must remain both diverse and selective. We have repeatedly acknowledged the overriding importance of preparing students for work and citizenship, describing education as pivotal in sustaining our political and cultural heritage with a fundamental role in maintaining the fabric of society. This court has long recognized that education is the very foundation of good citizenship. For this reason, the diffusion of knowledge and opportunity through public institutions of higher education must be accessible to all individuals regardless of race or ethnicity. The United States, as Amicus Curiae affirms that ensuring that public institutions are open and available to all segments of American society, including people of all races and ethnicities, represents a paramount government objective. And nowhere is the importance of such openness more acute than in the context of higher education. Effective participation by members of all racial and ethnic groups in the civic life of our nation is essential if the dream of one nation, indivisible, is to be realized. Moreover, universities, and in particular law schools, represent the training ground for a large number of our nation's leaders. Individuals with law degrees occupy roughly half the state governorships, more than half the seats in the United States Senate, and more than a third of the seats in the United States House of Representatives. The pattern is even more striking when it comes to highly selective law schools. A handful of these schools accounts for 25 of the 100 United States Senators, 74 United States Courts of Appeals judges, and nearly 200 of the more 600 United States District Court judges. In order to cultivate a set of leaders with legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry, it is necessary that the path to leadership be visibly open to talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity. All members of our heterogeneous society must have confidence in the openness and integrity of the educational institutions that provide this training. As we have recognized, law schools cannot be effective in isolation from the individuals and institutions with which the law interacts. Access to legal education, and thus the legal profession, must be inclusive of talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity so that all members of our heterogeneous society may participate in the educational institutions 
that provide the training and education necessary to succeed in America. The law school does not premise its need for critical mass on any belief that minority students always or even consistently express some characteristic minority viewpoint on any issue. To the contrary, diminishing the force of such stereotypes is both a crucial part of the law school's mission and one that it cannot accomplish with only token numbers of minority students. Just as growing up in a particular region or having particular professional experiences is likely to affect an individual's views, so too is one's own unique experience of being a racial minority in a society, like our own, in which race unfortunately still matters. The law school has determined, based on its experience and expertise, that a critical mass of underrepresented minorities is necessary to further its compelling interest in securing the educational benefits of a diverse student body. Section B. Even in the limited circumstance when drawing racial distinctions is permissible to further a compelling state interest, government is still constrained in how it may pursue that end. The means chosen to accomplish the government's asserted purpose must be specifically and narrowly framed to accomplish that purpose. The purpose of the narrow tailoring requirement is to ensure that the means chosen fit the compelling goal so closely that there is little or no possibility that the motive for the classification was illegitimate racial prejudice or stereotype. Since Baki, we've had no occasion to define the contours of the narrow tailoring inquiry with respect to race-conscious university admissions programs, that inquiry must be calibrated to fit the distinct issues raised by the use of race to achieve student body diversity in public higher education. Contrary to Justice Kennedy's assertions, we do not abandon strict scrutiny. Rather, as we have already explained, we adhere to Adirond's teaching that the very purpose of strict scrutiny is to take such relevant differences into account. To be narrowly tailored, a race-conscious admissions program cannot use a quota system. It cannot insulate each category of applicants with certain desired qualifications from competition with all other applicants. Instead, a university may consider race or ethnicity only as a plus in a particular applicant's file, without insulating the individual from comparison with all other candidates for the available seats. In other words, an admissions program must be flexible enough to consider all pertinent elements of diversity in light of the particular qualifications of each applicant, and to place them on the same footing for consideration although not necessarily according them the same weight. We find that the law school's admissions program bears the hallmarks of a narrowly tailored plan. 
as Justice Powell made clear in Bakke, truly individualized consideration demands that race be used in a flexible, non-mechanical way. It follows from this mandate that universities cannot establish quotas for members of certain racial groups or put members of those groups on separate admissions tracks. Nor can universities insulate applicants who belong to certain racial or ethnic groups from the competition for admission. Universities can, however, consider race or ethnicity more flexibly as a plus factor in the context of individualized consideration of each and every applicant. We are satisfied that the law school's admissions program, like the Harvard plan described by Justice Powell, does not operate as a quota. Properly understood, a quota is a program in which a certain fixed number or proportion of opportunities are reserved exclusively for certain minority groups. Quotas impose a fixed number or percentage which must be attained or which cannot be exceeded and insulate the individual from comparison with all other candidates for the available seats. In contrast, a permissible goal requires only a good-faith effort to come within a range demarcated by the goal itself and permits consideration of race as a plus factor in any given case while still ensuring that each candidate competes with all other qualified applicants. Justice Powell's distinction between the medical school's rigid 16-seat quota and Harvard's flexible use of race as a plus factor is instructive. Harvard certainly had minimum goals for minority enrollment, even if it had no specific number firmly in mind. What is more, Justice Powell flatly rejected the argument that Harvard's program was the functional equivalent of a quota, merely because it had some plus for race, or gave greater weight to race than to some other factors, in order to achieve student body diversity. The law school's goal of attaining critical mass of underrepresented minority students does not transform its program into a quota. As the Harvard plan described by Justice Powell recognized, there is, of course, some relationship between numbers and achieving the benefits to be derived from a diverse student body and between numbers and providing a reasonable environment for those students admitted. Some attention to numbers without more does not transform a flexible admission system into a rigid quota, nor, as Justice Kennedy posits, does the law school's consultation of the daily reports, which keep track of the racial and ethnic composition of the class, as well as of residency and gender, suggest there was no further attempt at individual review save for race itself, during the final stages of the admissions process. 
To the contrary, the law school's admissions officers testified without contradiction that they never gave race any more or less weight based on the information contained in these reports. Moreover, as Justice Kennedy concedes, between 1993 and 1998, the number of African American, Latino, and Native American students in each class at the law school varied from 13.5 to 20.1 percent, a range inconsistent with the quota. The Chief Justice believes that the law school's policy conceals an attempt to achieve racial balancing and cites admissions data to contend that the law school discriminates among different groups within the critical mass. But, as the Chief Justice concedes, the number of underrepresented minority students who ultimately enroll in the law school differs substantially from their representation in the applicant pool and varies considerably for each group from year to year. That a race-conscious admissions program does not operate as a quota does not by itself satisfy the requirement of individualized consideration. When using race as a plus factor in university admissions, a university's admissions program must remain flexible enough to ensure that each applicant is evaluated as an individual and not in a way that makes an applicant's race or ethnicity the defining feature of his or her application. The importance of this individualized consideration in the context of a race-conscious admissions program is paramount. Here, the law school engages in a highly individualized, holistic review of each applicant's file, giving serious consideration to all the ways an applicant might contribute to a diverse educational environment. The law school affords this individualized consideration to applicants of all races. There is no policy, either de jure or de facto, of automatic acceptance or rejection based on any single soft variable. Unlike the program at issue in Gratz v. Bollinger, the law school awards no mechanical predetermined diversity bonuses based on race or ethnicity. Like the Harvard plan, the law school's admissions policy is flexible enough to consider all pertinent elements of diversity in light of the particular qualifications of each applicant and to place them on the same footing for consideration, although not necessarily according them the same weight. We also find that, like the Harvard plan Justice Powell referenced in Bakke, the law school's race-conscious admissions program adequately ensures that all factors that may contribute to student body diversity are meaningfully considered alongside race in admissions decisions. With respect to the use of race itself, all underrepresented minority students admitted by the law school have been deemed qualified. 
By virtue of our nation's struggle with racial inequality, such students are both likely to have experiences of particular importance to the law school's mission and less likely to be admitted in meaningful numbers on criteria that ignore those experiences. The law school does not, however, limit in any way the broad range of qualities and experiences that may be considered valuable contributions to student body diversity. To the contrary, the 1992 policy makes clear there are many possible bases for diversity admissions and provides examples of admittees who have lived or traveled widely abroad, are fluent in several languages, have overcome personal adversity and family hardship, have exceptional records of extensive community service, and have had successful careers in other fields. The law school seriously considers each applicant's promise of making a notable contribution to the class by way of a particular strength, attainment, or characteristic. For example, an unusual intellectual achievement, employment experience, non-academic performance, or personal background. All applicants have the opportunity to highlight their own potential diversity contributions through the submission of a personal statement, letters of recommendation, and an essay describing the ways in which the applicant will contribute to the life and diversity of the law school. What is more, the law school actually gives substantial weight to diversity factors besides race. The law school frequently accepts non-minority applicants with grades and test scores lower than underrepresented minority applicants and other non-minority applicants who are rejected. This shows that the law school seriously weighs many other diversity factors besides race that can make a real and dispositive difference for non-minority applicants as well. By this flexible approach, the law school sufficiently takes into account, in practice as well as in theory, a wide variety of characteristics besides race and ethnicity that contribute to a diverse student body. Justice Kennedy speculates that race is likely outcome determinative for many members of minority groups who do not fall within the upper range of LSAT scores and grades. But the same could be said of the Harvard plan discussed approvingly by Justice Powell and Bakke, and indeed of any plan that uses race as one of many factors. Petitioner and the United States argue that the law school's plan is not narrowly tailored because race-neutral means exist to obtain the educational benefits of student body diversity that the law school seeks. We disagree. Narrow tailoring does not require exhaustion of every conceivable race-neutral alternative. Nor does it require a university to choose between maintaining a reputation for excellence 
or fulfilling a commitment to provide educational opportunities to members of all racial groups. Narrow tailoring does, however, require serious, good-faith consideration of workable, race-neutral alternatives that will achieve the diversity the university seeks. We agree with the Court of Appeals that the law school sufficiently considered workable, race-neutral alternatives. The district court took the law school to task for failing to consider race-neutral alternatives, such as using a lottery system or decreasing the emphasis for all applicants on undergraduate GPA and LSAT scores. But these alternatives would require a dramatic sacrifice of diversity, the academic quality of all admitted students, or both. The law school's current admissions program considers race as one factor among many in an effort to assemble a student body that is diverse in ways broader than race. Because a lottery would make that kind of nuanced judgment impossible, it would effectively sacrifice all other educational values, not to mention every other kind of diversity. So too, with the suggestion that the law school simply lower admission standards for all students, a drastic remedy that would require the law school to become a much different institution and sacrifice a vital component of its educational mission. The United States advocates percentage plans recently adopted by public undergraduate institutions in Texas, Florida, and California to guarantee admission to all students above a certain class rank threshold in every high school in the state. The United States does not, however, explain how such plans could work for graduate and professional schools. Moreover, even assuming such plans are race-neutral, they may preclude the university from conducting the individualized assessments necessary to assemble a student body that is not just racially diverse, but diverse along all the qualities valued by the university. We are satisfied that the law school adequately considered race-neutral alternatives currently capable of producing a critical mass without forcing the law school to abandon the academic selectivity that is the cornerstone of its educational mission. We acknowledge that there are serious problems of justice connected with the idea of preference itself. Narrow tailoring, therefore, requires that a race-conscious admissions program not unduly harm members of any racial group. Even remedial race-based governmental action generally remains subject to continuing oversight to assure that it will work the least harm possible to other innocent persons competing for the benefit. To be narrowly tailored, a race-conscious admissions program must not unduly burden individuals who are not members of the favored racial and ethnic groups.
We are satisfied that the law school's admissions program does not. Because the law school considers all pertinent elements of diversity, it can and does select non-minority applicants who have greater potential to enhance student body diversity over underrepresented minority applicants. As Justice Powell recognized in Baki, so long as a race-conscious admissions program uses race as a plus factor in the context of individualized consideration, a rejected applicant will not have been foreclosed from all consideration for that seat simply because he was not the right color or had the wrong surname. His qualifications would have been weighted fairly and competitively, and he would have no basis to complain of unequal treatment under the 14th Amendment. We agree that, in the context of its individualized inquiry into the possible diversity contributions of all applicants, the law school's race-conscious admissions program does not unduly harm non-minority applicants. We are mindful, however, that a core purpose of the 14th Amendment was to do away with all governmentally imposed discrimination based on race. Accordingly, race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time. This requirement reflects that racial classifications however compelling their goals, are potentially so dangerous that they may be employed no more broadly than the interest demands. Enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences would offend this fundamental equal protection principle. We see no reason to exempt race-conscious admissions programs from the requirement that all governmental use of race must have a logical endpoint. The law school, too, concedes that all race-conscious programs must have reasonable durational limits. In the context of higher education, the durational requirement can be met by sunset provisions in race-conscious admissions policies and periodic reviews to determine whether racial preferences are still necessary to achieve student body diversity. Universities in California, Florida, and Washington State, where racial preferences in admissions are prohibited by state law, are currently engaged in experimenting with a wide variety of alternative approaches. Universities in other states can and should draw on the most promising aspects of these race-neutral alternatives as they develop. The requirement that all race-conscious admissions programs have a termination point assures all citizens that the deviation from the norm of equal treatment of all racial and ethnic groups is a temporary matter, a measure taken in the service of the goal of equality itself. We take the law school at its word that it would like nothing better than to find a race-neutral admissions formula and will terminate its race-conscious admissions program 
as soon as practicable. It has been 25 years since Justice Powell first approved the use of race to further an interest in student body diversity in the context of public higher education. Since that time, the number of minority applicants with high grades and test scores has indeed increased. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. Part 4 In summary, the Equal Protection Clause does not prohibit the law school's narrowly tailored use of race in admissions decisions to further a compelling interest in obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. Consequently, petitioners' statutory claims based on Title VI and 42 U.S.C. 1981 also fail. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, accordingly, is affirmed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.